Our second reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The word of the Lord. Well, very good morning to you. It's lovely to be standing here with you. I say it's lovely to be standing because I wasn't sure that I would be able to stand at all on Monday. On Monday this week, I was doing one of my honey-do lists. I was fixing a printer, not a very heavy printer. It was broken, so I was replacing one printer with another, getting it out of the box and putting it on the, you know, where the printer was. And I turned, and as I turned, in my back. And I was straight down on the floor, and I couldn't move. And I thought, this is interesting. This is interesting, and this is painful. And um, fortunately, my children were in the house. And you know how kids are when their parents get hurt. They kind of come across and wander and look at you and say, what on earth are you doing on the floor, Dad? And this is inconvenient. Would you get up now? Um, and I couldn't. I just could not get up. I couldn't move. After a little while, I figured that I could at least roll onto my back, and I lay there for about two hours trying to figure out how to get back up again. Couldn't do it. My wife came home. A couple of neighborhood friends came around. None of us could get me up, so we called 911. So 911 and the ambulance and a fire truck turn up. I, mean, I think it's just ridiculous. And so I was carted off to ER, and they gave me some happy drugs. And I think I'm still happy. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> Life seems rather rosy at the moment. But there was that two-hour period where I was lying on the floor, a kind of in-between moment, in between the event itself and the rescue that would surely come. And I want to just think a little bit with you this morning about um, the in-between period we are in as the church. We are, um, as a church, we follow the church calendar, and we had Easter. Did you notice that? Yeah, yeah, good. Just, just checking. We had Easter, and we're kind of heading towards Pentecost. Pentecost, 50 days after Easter, thereabouts. 
Pentecost, the moment when the Spirit was poured out on the church, is often celebrated as the birth of the church. But we are in a period in between those two times. Do you know what that period is called by any chance? Ah, did you know that the church has a name for that in-between period? It's called Eastertide. Had you heard that before? No. I hadn't heard about that before until I watched a talk by a man called John Tyson. John Tyson is a pastor up in uh, New York, and he talked about this period, Eastertide, and I thought, that's so interesting. I'd never heard that word, Eastertide. What is Eastertide? And I want to think about it because the more I thought about it and the more I looked at it, I thought, this is really quite an interesting period. This is the period between Jesus' resurrection, where he has, as it were, been vindicated as the Lord of life, walking seemingly with an imperishable body on the face of this earth. What is he going to do with 40 days? So I just want to have a little look at it, because I think what he does is very instructive for us as Easter people who, in a sense, live in between times. Christians are, in a sense, people who live in between Jesus and Jesus. Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming. So I want to look at it because I think it will teach us something about how we're supposed to live in that kind of in-between time. Would you pray with me? Father God, this morning, I'm feeling very happy. I think it's the drugs. But Lord, I hope it's your spirit. And would you, as we look at your scriptures, as we look at this interesting, seemingly inconsequential, but I think very consequential period, would you speak to our hearts as you spoke to your disciples in that period of time that we call Eastertide? And we pray those things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, question, you are, just come with me in your imaginations, you are the Lord of life. You can do absolutely anything, okay? Just imagine that. It's quite safe. Just a little experiment. You have 40 days left. What are you going to do with your 40 days? Come on. Somebody must have an idea. What would you like to do? See your friends, perhaps, yeah? Go to the beach, perhaps? Destroy my enemies? How about take on the powers of this world? Take on Caesar. Turn up in the Colosseum. Hey, Caesar, you think you're Lord. Let me show you who really is Lord. Maybe that's a little ridiculous. The point is, he could have done just about anything, right? But in fact, I don't know who it was, what he really did was he spent 40 days hanging out with his friends. The time between his resurrection and his ascension is a very tender time. It's a very intimate time. And there are three moments that really stand out during that period of time. One was a little incident with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Do you remember that? 
two disciples wandering, discouraged, not sure what's going on. Jesus falls in step alongside them. Do you remember that moment? The other, he spends a little time with Thomas, doubting Thomas. Thomas is not sure what's going on, not sure about the stories that are going around that Jesus may have risen. And then there's Peter, faithless Peter, the betrayer. He spends a little time with Peter. Now, those could be three isolated incidents that are just recorded by Luke because they just happened. They're just little anecdotes. These are the things that happened. But I doubt that. I doubt that they're recorded just because they happened. I think this little part is actually trying to teach us something very important about Jesus' major preoccupation. What was the thing that Jesus spoke about more than anything else in the Gospels? Oh, come on! The kingdom of God, number one. Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God more than anything else in the Gospels. And we read this morning from the book of Acts. Acts is Luke part two. You've been going as a church um, through the Gospel of Luke, and now we're into Acts. Acts is really Luke part two. And this is what we read. This is um, Acts 1 verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, Theophilus. Theophilus might be somebody real. Theophilus simply means God lover. So it could be you and me. It might be a made-up name. We're not sure. Oh, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. I've told you about all that stuff. Until the day that he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles. So Jesus has been teaching the apostles whom he had chosen. Then he goes on. He presented, Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering, so now we're talking about the cross, by many proofs. So Jesus presents himself to some of his disciples, look, I'm here, I'm alive, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking to them about what? The kingdom of God. What? Jesus has spent three years with his disciples, teaching them about the kingdom of God. Jesus is crucified, rises from the dead, goes to spend time with his disciples, and what does he teach them about? Why is this so difficult to get our heads around? What is it about the kingdom of God that the disciples simply cannot seem to understand? So that in this period of Eastertide, Jesus is again teaching them about the kingdom of God. And I think there's a little clue in that, um, the, the story of um, the road to Emmaus. We're not going to look at the Scripture, but let's, let me tell you very quickly what happens, just to remind you. Two disciples are on their way from Jerusalem to a little village called Emmaus. Emmaus is about seven miles from Jerusalem. It'll take you a couple of hours, two, three hours to walk there. And these two disciples are distraught. 
As far as they're concerned, the whole Jesus project has come to a catastrophic end. Their Messiah, their hope has been crucified. And now all they hear are rumors from women. Women in those days were not taken as reliable witnesses. I'm sorry, that's just the way it was. So all they have now is rumors from unreliable witnesses. Women, I apologize, it's not me saying that. That's what first century Jews would have believed. Rumors from women that, oh, there have been angels, right. And that he'd been seen alive, but nobody can find him, right. So these two disciples are distraught. And they're walking to Emmaus. And as they walk to Emmaus, this man falls in step beside them. And he does, they don't recognize who he is. But it's Jesus. And they begin to talk. Now, there's a little clue in that story that if we were a first century Jew, apart from our slightly objectionable views of women and their reliability, Emmaus is not an insignificant name to a first century Jew. You see, about a hundred years before Jesus, there was another Messiah who came along, whose name was Judas. Judas Maccabeus. And Judas Maccabeus led a revolt against the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, the oppressor of the Jewish people. And Judas Maccabeus led a successful revolt and established a dynasty that lasted for something like a hundred years, where the Jewish people had reestablished their own hegemony, as it were, in their own land, their own priesthood. They had, as it were, reestablished the kingdom. And guess where the most significant battle in that revolt took place? Emmaus. You see, the two disciples had seen the Jesus project, and it looked like it had failed. And now they are walking back to another way of establishing the kingdom of God, a way of establishing the kingdom of God that you and I and most of us would recognize by violence and power, by fighting. They'd seen that work before. The Jesus Project has failed. Let's go back to that. And in fact, as you read through the Gospels, you will see competing ideas about how God would establish His kingdom. And there are really only three, as far as I can make out. One is a group called the Zealots. Peter, the, uh, Peter the Apostle, was a zealot. He's marked out as a zealot. The zealots basically thought the way that we will reestablish the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, by the way, is a good thing. It's when everything is restored, Israel is restored, everybody's at peace. The way you do it is you pick up your sword and you fight. Are there any zealots in the room today? I am. I am. That's my tendency. When I get angry about something, I, I want to fight. That was one way people thought that 
the kingdom of God could be reestablished. The other way was a group called the Essenes. Have you heard of the Essenes? The Essenes thought the way that you would reestablish the kingdom of God is you kind of withdraw into the desert in a little huddle. And you kind of hang out with your pals and wait and hope that it'll all turn out okay. Have we got any Essenes in the room? You will have heard, surely, if you read anything, that there are some who say, because of what's going on in our country right now, that there is an option. This is not entirely a fair characterization, but the Benedict option, what we should do is retreat and just have our own little communities, and we'll wait for things to happen. That's another way. That's with the Athenes. And the third group you should also probably recognize. There's another group who says, no, 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 no. Not by fighting, not by withdrawing, but by becoming extremely pure in your doctrine. That's how the kingdom of God will come. Do you know who they were? The Pharisees. All the way through Jesus' ministry, those competing ideas of how the kingdom of God the deepest longings of the human heart would be established. Those competing ideas are competing with Jesus' own understanding of how the kingdom of God would be established. And Jesus is always having to say, as he says to us, as he says to me, again and again and again, that, those three, and any other version that you can think of, that is not my way. That is not my way. And at Easter, on the cross, Jesus demonstrates God's way of bringing the kingdom. And it could be summed up in two simple words. Sacrificial love. At Easter, Jesus says to us, there is no other way to bring about this longed-for kingdom of God. We read from Daniel. Israel, the people of God, had carried the hope of God and the establishment of His kingdom for hundreds and hundreds of years. They'd had various goes of getting it done. And Jesus comes and says, your way will not work. The only way is my way, and my way is sacrificial love. There is no other way. In Romans 12, Paul tells us to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. You will have heard, I'm sure, that as the church we are a priesthood of all of believers. We are all priests that this collar, in a way, is a reminder not that I'm special or Johnny's special. It's a reminder of your priesthood. What do priests do? They offer sacrifices. As a Christian priest, who is the sacrifice? You. That's the idea. Sacrificial love. I've been reading a book called Costly Love, which I would highly recommend to you, by a man called John Armstrong. And he says it, puts it like this. Love is life's central 
reality. Because God is love. Love alone gives real purpose to every other attribute of God's holy nature. Love determines the selfless actions of God and explains everything He does, including His justice and judgment. Now, that's all very nice and warm and fuzzy, isn't it? But the kind of love that Jesus is talking about, the kind of love that the Gospels talk about, the kind of love that the Scripture is talking about is not sentimental. Jesus stood at the beginning of His ministry and He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. God's love is on me because He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. It's the kind of love that is good news to poor people. To proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It is active. It is not passive. But here's the thing, and here's the thing that I've discovered in my life. I am really, really bad at sacrificial love. Everything in me does not want to do it. I do not want to be laid down flat on my back and feel powerless. I like power. I like my own strength. I like my own abilities that I have worked years and years to develop. This idea of sacrificial love is utterly alien to me. It is not in my nature. It is not in human nature as it is formed ever to really understand sacrificial love. And Jesus knew that. So what did he say to the disciples in this period in between the cross and Pentecost? He says, don't go now Now that you've seen something of the kingdom of God, don't you go trying to do this thing in your own strength. It will not work. You are going to have to wait for something, or rather someone. And who are you going to wait for? If we read in verse 6, the disciples come together, and they ask Jesus, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? More kingdom talk, still waiting for the kingdom. And Jesus said to them, It's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What kind of power? Harry Potter power? Gandalf power? No. The kind of power you will need to live a life of sacrificial love, or at least begin to. That kind of power. You cannot do it without the work of the Spirit. And you know what that word witness in the original language is very close to, and we actually draw another word for it, from it? It's the word martyr. Who's excited now? You will be my martyrs 
in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and I'm not talking about literally necessarily dying, unless anybody has a particular passion for that right now. But you will become my sacrifice, if you will, to the world. That is how the kingdom of God comes. There is no other way. You cannot do it by being a zealot or by being an Essene or by being a Pharisee, by being really pure, by withdrawing and being very holy or picking up your sword and fighting for it in whatever way you think is right. The only way that the kingdom of God comes is by becoming in yourself a sacrifice. This is N.T. Wright. I think it's actually quite an empowering thing because it means that whatever you do in the power of the Spirit has the power to bring the kingdom of God in some way. And N.T. Wright writes this, what do you do in the present? This is not some far-off thing. This is not something that happens when you die. This is not something you are waiting for, but whatever you do in the present, by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself, will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable, until the day when we leave it behind altogether. They are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. Let me just finish with this. What kind of people can do this kind of stuff? People like Thomas. You remember Thomas? Doubting Thomas? He says, I won't believe that you're the risen Lord unless I can stick my fingers into your wounds. How does Jesus treat doubting Thomas? With kindness and respect. What about Peter? Peter who denied Jesus three times. How does Jesus treat Peter? With gentleness and respect. Is that how we treat those around us and among us who we're not sure have really got it? In the church, outside the church, with kindness and respect, with patience. That's what Jesus did. Perhaps because Jesus simply understood that what he is asking of us humanly is beyond us. That we will need something more. We will need God himself through the power of his spirit. You're going to hear a little notice for something called the Alpha Course. The Alpha Course is a presentation of the gospel. One of the most fundamental aspects of it is a presentation of the work of the Holy Spirit. I have seen people who are Christians and non-Christians be transformed by that, not by some great charismatic experience necessarily, not by falling on the floor or wobbling necessarily, but just an understanding of who the Holy Spirit is and why the Holy Spirit is so fundamental to the life of a Christian. John Tyson, who I quoted a little bit earlier on, said this, the gospel, by which he means what I've just been talking about, confronts every other ideology. 
There are Christian ideologies, there are secular ideologies, there are all sorts of ideologies. But the gospel confronts every other ideology that says it has a better way of transforming culture. There is no other way. That's why Jesus taught in that precious, precious 40 days after the resurrection, before his ascension, when he could have done anything, he taught and taught about how the kingdom of God would come through the work of the Spirit. I don't know about you, sometimes I feel like the church in North America, we feel like we're flat on our back. We're not sure how to get up anymore. And our temptation is always to go back to Emmaus, to become an Essene, a Pharisee, a zealot. But the invitation is always to recapture as a people, that's us, the way of Jesus. When I was a kid, about four or five years old, I used to sing a song. It was called The Way. And I would sing it. My parents would put me on the table, and I'd sing The Way, The Way, The Way, The Way the way so-and-so did this, the way people do that, the way, the way. Do you know what the early followers of Christ were called? Followers of the way. Not of a particular doctrine, although obviously that was there as well. It was the way they lived into the world around them. In the power of the Spirit, loving sacrificially. That's it. Shall we pray? Lord Jesus, You promised that you would pour out your Spirit on anyone who asked. How much more, you said, will the Father give good gifts to those who ask? How much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit? Lord, as your people, wherever we are, feeling flat on our back, feeling powerful, feeling strong, feeling like we want to retreat, feeling like we know all the answers. We need your Spirit. Teach us again your way. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.